Hello and welcome to the History of Modern Greece. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George, and our theme music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is a podcast that covers the events from the fall of ancient Greece to the modern day. This is episode 22, Philip Brings the Wrath of the Romans. By 265 BCE, the Roman Republic had completely seized control of the Italian boot. That's the peninsula. The Greek threat had been wiped out from the Italian mainland, but there was still Syracuse on the island of Sicily. And now that the Romans were this far south, they were starting to come into contact with the Phoenician colony Carthage, as known as the Carthaginian Empire. In 264 BCE, in the Sicilian city of Messana, a group of mercenaries called the Mamertines were ravaging the countryside of Syracuse, who was now starting to tighten his grip in the region and threaten Messana. They sent a call for help to both the Carthaginians and the Romans, and of course they both responded. This led to two of the greatest empires clashing head-to-head in northern Sicily. The Romans had troubling sailing across the strait with Carthage patrolling the seas, but when they did make it across, they quickly captured Messana and expelled the Carthaginians. The Carthage general who lost Messana was returned to Carthage where he was publicly crucified for his failure. With the embarrassment of losing Messana to the Romans, Carthage turned to its longtime enemy for help, Syracuse, the Greek colony, the Dorian one. Now the Greeks and the Phoenicians had an official alliance against the Romans. The Romans had landed their army and secured a base, and they were now marching towards Syracuse. The only problem was the Romans had no supplies. They had to forage for food, and they were launching an overseas campaign. The Carthaginian navy was the most dominant navy in the region, and they never let a single Roman vessel near the island. The Romans were hungry. And when they got to Syracuse, they were met with walls. The Syracusians capitulated to the Romans and agreed to become their ally and supply them while they campaigned against the Carthaginians. Even though the Romans lacked the technology for siege warfare, it is in this war that the Romans learned how to starve a city to death. They didn't know how to undermine or build siege towers, but they did know how to build walls. So they cut down every tree around them and built a wall about 500 meters away from the city walls, completely enclosing it, but also creating a large no-man's land cleared of all trees and brush. The Romans then built a second wall further out that protected them from enemy reinforcements. This allowed the Romans to properly camp and relative safely while they slowly waited for the citizens of the city to starve to death. At the beginning of the conflict, the Romans managed to capture a beached Carthaginian battleship and sent it back to Rome to be studied. The Romans ended up learning the entire mechanics of the Carthaginian ship and ordered the construction of an entire fleet. This was a bold move, as the Romans didn't even know if their designs were going to work in the field. But they just went ahead and built a naval fleet rival to that of the greatest maritime superpower for over 500 years. For over a decade, the war between the Romans and the Carthaginians was waged between the two powers on the island of Sicily, the Romans proving themselves to be very resourceful. In 256 BCE, the war was brought to the north coast of Africa, 
the home of the Carthaginians and the breadbasket of the Mediterranean. In the ultimate maritime showdown, the new Roman fleet met the largest ever assembled naval fleet of Carthaginian ships. Not only did Rome build a fleet secretively in less than a decade, but they also managed to build the biggest fleet ever, and they defeated the Carthaginians on their home front. From this point on, the Romans brought the war from Sicily to Africa, and they besieged Carthage and all of their cities and countryside. In 242 BCE, Alexander II, king of Epirus, died, and his son Pyrrhus II became king. Pyrrhus II only had two daughters and, there, and no heir when he died only seven years later. The crown went to his brother Ptolemy, skipping the daughter of Pyrrhus, Deidamia. Sometime around 235 BCE, or give or take five years, Ptolemy led a military charge into battle trying to emulate Alexander the Great, no doubt, and was killed in battle. Now this actually becomes a problem with the Greeks. Every one of their leaders has to lead the charge into battle for the glory. But when they die, the army is left leaderless and everything falls apart. And this time, Ptolemy II was killed in battle and the throne went to the daughter of Pyrrhus II, Deidamia. She was definitely a fighter like her father and grandfather, but especially more like her grandfather. And she led her kingdom into several campaigns during her reign, but she was eventually assassinated in 231 BCE. In 241 BCE, the First Punic War ended, and the Roman Republic gained all of Sicily, except for Syracuse, as the first province in the Republic. The Roman Republic was expanding, one thing that made the Romans exceptionally dangerous was the fact that the official position of consul rotated every year. So there was only one shot at glory. Every single consul who came to power tried to conquer a new territory so they could have a triumph in Rome. And at this point, the entire Hellenic world was on the table. From this point in the story, the Roman Empire has its sights on all of the Greek world. The Romans were very paranoid of outside threats, and to them the Greeks were the greatest threat next door. But at this point in time, they were divided and fighting among themselves. There was Macedonia, the Seleucid Empire of Anatolia, Syria, and much of the Levant, and Ptolemy in Egypt and North Africa, not to mention all the Greek city-states. We haven't talked much about them, but Thebes and Athens and Corinth, they're still around, and mostly independent. We know the Romans knew about Alexander the Great's empire, and I can only imagine they feared the possibility of them reuniting, or more likely, one of the Greek city-states conquering all the others, and then turning their attention west. Just like Pyrrhus of Epirus had done, the Greeks had to be subdued for the security of the empire, and this is the time in history where it happens. In 230 BCE, the once great kingdom of Epirus collapsed, and the monarchy ended. This instability led to the Illyrians in the north to move in and take control. Up until this point, the Illyrians had been mostly a tribal people, but a king had risen to power after subduing all of his neighboring tribes through bloody combat, and as timing worked out, as it seems to do from time to time, the economic and political collapse of Epirus coincided with the rise of a barbarian king to the north. When the Illyrians invaded Epirus, 
it upset the stability of the region. Shortly after the Illyrian conquest of Epirus, their king died and left the throne to his wife. The queen of Illyria continued a reign of belligerence and sent raiders out across the sea, raiding small towns on the Italian coast and pirating merchant and fishing vessels in the Adriatic Sea, the water between Italy and Greece. This was something the Romans simply couldn't tolerate. The Roman Senate voted to send diplomats across the sea to make contact with the Illyrian queen. The Roman diplomats met with the queen and delivered her a message. Stop the raiding at once. There was no negotiating. It was a straightforward demand from the Romans. And they were giving them one chance to comply peacefully. The queen, however, did not comply. And in fact, she refused them on the spot and they were both killed. The Roman... Senate received the Queen's message loud and clear. They gathered their legions and prepared to cross the water. In 229 BCE, an army of over 22,000 soldiers were ferried across the sea with over 200 ships. The campaign was short-lived as the Roman legions crushed the disorganized Illyrians. By 228 BCE, The Romans had defeated the Illyrians, forced the queen into a peace treaty, forbidding her from entering the sea, and also carving her land up into smaller client states. The Romans sailed home that year, but left the queen under the terms of complete submission. In essence, they made her a client state, and she better do as they say. However, the governor of the client state to the south of the queen did not want to capitulate to the Romans, nor did he want to serve the Illyrian queen. Instead, he decided to marry the dead king's mother, making himself legally the queen's father-in-law, and therefore the rightful ruler to the Illyrians. Of course, this new general's name is Demetrius, and Demetrius went a-conquering and reformed the Illyrian kingdom that had just been destroyed by the Romans. Demetrius captured all of the old kingdom back from the other governors and the queen herself, but also started a raid further north into other Roman client states. Due to a pressing war in the north of the Italian peninsula, the Roman legions were occupied and couldn't intervene with Demetrius, and this led to Demetrius making even bolder moves. Thinking he could get away with it, Demetrius not only rekindled the piracy raids on the southern Italian coast, he organized the biggest raiding party of Illyrians ever, assembled. It is safe to say that Demetrius had no idea the size of the beast he was angering. After eight years of raids and piracy and blatant violations of the Roman Peace Treaty of 228 BCE, the Romans assembled an insanely large invasion party to make an example of the Illyrians. The Romans defeated the entire Illyrian army in only seven days, and Demetrius fled the land in a ship to hide in southern Greece. Fleeing this quickly meant leaving his family behind to be enslaved by the Romans. When he landed in the Peloponnese, he happened to run into the king of Macedon, Philip V, and his massive navy. This chance meeting led to a new friendship between the king of Macedon and Demetrius, and he quickly became Philip's advisor. Philip V was also on a quest to conquer the Greek peninsula, and he planned to use Demetrius' knowledge to his advantage. In hindsight, it is clear that this was a bad hire. In 220 BCE, Philip V went to war with the Aetolian League, which was a small band of Greek city-states north of the Peloponnese. 
While Philip V of Macedon waged war against his Greek neighbors to the south, Hannibal was marching his elephants across the Alps and invaded Italy from the north. Hearing about the invasion of the Roman Republic and the Carthaginian victories, Philip V assumed this was the end of the Roman Republic, so he prepared an invasion of his own across the Ionian Sea in hopes to seize as much territory from the dying Republic while he could. This was all at the behest of Demetrius, of course, his advisor who took a beating from the Romans a few years earlier and wanted revenge. In 216 BCE, Philip sent his army into Illyrian territory, which was still a client state of the Roman Republic. His invasion of the Illyrian coastal cities was quickly halted when he heard that a Roman fleet was on the way to Illyria. Spooked by the approaching threat, he retreated to Macedon. However, the news of another Roman defeat from Hannibal made it to Philip V, and he couldn't resist any longer. He sent a diplomat into Italy to make contact with Hannibal and join forces. Upon arriving in the southern Italian coast, he quickly he was quickly captured by a Roman officer, was arrested, and sent to the Roman capital for corporal punishment. However, he managed to talk himself out of his chains by convincing the Roman officers that he was actually here to make an alliance with the Romans so they could work together to defeat Hannibal. And this worked, and he was set free. And after traveling across the peninsula, the diplomat finally made contact with Hannibal and signed an alliance between the Carthaginians and the Macedonians. Unfortunately for the Macedonian diplomat, he was captured by a Roman vessel on his way home, and they found the treaty between Hannibal and Philip V. There was no turning back now, and for the Romans this was devastating news, as they were on the brink of total annihilation, and now they had an even greater threat to their east. In 214 BCE, Philip V sent his entire army into Illyria to capture the coastal cities and bring them into his fold. During this aggressive campaign for the Macedonians, a messenger made it across the sea and sent for help from the Roman legionnaires. Philip was just about ready to send his army across the sea to invade the Italian coast when the legionnaires responded and sent their own war vessels across the water to repel the Macedonians from the Illyrian coast taking back the crucial port cities required for launching a coordinated invasion against the Romans. Philip V was now on the retreat. However, he couldn't just end the war. The Romans wouldn't allow that to happen, so he marched his army north to try again. In 213 BCE, Philip V marched his armies across the northern mountains to attack the city of Epidamnus and conquered it and their neighbors. And he was fairly successful taking huge parts of northern Illyria and several cities without any response from the Romans to the south. The Romans were still fighting Hannibal in their homeland and couldn't spare the land troops needed to stop Philip. However, in 212 BCE, Philip V captured a port city in the north that was capable of staging a land invasion of northern Italy. And the Romans were forced to deal with the threat of the Macedons. But they couldn't afford to send soldiers there to fight him, so they decided that a different tactic would have to be used. In 211 BCE, the Roman Senate started sending diplomats to the other Greek city-states to the south of Macedon in order to stir up trouble for Philip at home. Diplomats were sent to the Aetolian League, who just finished fighting a war against Philip. They also sent diplomats to Sparta, Messenia, 
the old helots, Ellis, the Achaeans, and even Pergamon in Anatolia. The diplomats proposed a joint war against Macedon and promised the Greeks would be able to keep any city they conquered from the Macedonians as long as they gave the booty to the Romans. The war actually went well for Philip V of Macedon, but the Romans were happy as long as the Greeks were fighting each other. As Philip V defeated his armies, they tried to sign a peace treaty, but the negotiations were sabotaged by the Romans. They didn't want the Greeks to stop fighting each other just yet. In 205 BCE, the Greeks finally settled a peace treaty amongst themselves and the Romans. But the Romans never forgot the time Philip V tried to attack them while they were weakened. This proved to all of the senators and Romans alike that Macedon was a serious threat that could not be allowed to survive. In 200 BCE, the Carthaginian Hannibal left the Italian coast, and although he was never defeated in battle, the war was a clear victory for the Romans. They gained a lot of territory from the Second Punic War, and now they could focus their attention to their enemy in the east, Philip. In the Greek world to the east, there was a balance of power that settled after the wars of the Diadochi, or Alexander's generals. There were three great powers, Macedon, Ptolemaic Egypt, and the Seleucid Empire. When one became too powerful, the other two would team up and bring them to heel. This kept the region relatively stable. However, these Greek generals were still occupying foreign land, and they were starting to develop their own domestic issues, and it started to take a toll on these states. The Ptolemy state of Egypt started to weaken, and Egyptian priests led a revolt and declared a new native pharaoh, and this led to an all-out uprising, and many cities in Egypt rebelled from Alexandria. And to make matters worse, Ptolemy IV died and left his child's son king of Egypt. Philip V and the Seleucids smelled blood in the water and moved against the weakened Ptolemaic state. They moved in together and started to strip territory away from Ptolemy. This aggression from Philip V startled the smaller Greek states in mainland Greece. And they rose up against Philip, waging small battles against him at home. Diverted away from Ptolemaic Egypt, Philip V invaded the small Greek kingdom of Pergamon on the west coast of Anatolia, in the same general region as the legendary city of Troy. He defeated small army after small army and started to acquire more cities in the Adriatic, growing the large kingdom of Macedon into a formidable empire. He ended up getting bogged down in a war with the island of Rhodes and was surrounded by a Rhodesian navy. Even though Philip V was trapped in the port city, the Rhodesian navy was running out of supplies and would sooner or later have to retreat and allow Philip to escape. So the Rhodesians sent an emissary to Rome and told them about a secret alliance between Macedon and the Seleucid Empire to divide up the territory of Ptolemaic Egypt. The irony of all this is that the smaller Greek city-states came to the Romans because they thought the threat to their independence came from the Macedonians and the Seleucids. So they invited the Romans right into mainland Greece to help them keep their freedom. 
Eventually, though, Philip V broke free and made it back to Macedon, where he continued his campaign in Pergamon. And it was while he was warring with Pergamon that a letter from the Roman Senate arrived for him. The letter read, If Philip V refrains from attacking the other Greek empires, the Romans will not invade. Now this letter was also sent to Ptolemy and the Seleucids, and it prompted the Seleucids to break off their attack against young Ptolemy V in Egypt. Philip V, however, ripped the letter up and declared war against the Romans immediately. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America Podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mio. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. In late 200 BCE, Philip V returned to Macedon only to realize that 20,000 Roman troops had landed on the Illyrian coast. And at the same time, the Greek city-states to the south went to war with Philip. Instead of fighting the Romans first, which he should have done, he sent his armies south to crush the Aetolians and Achaeans and the Athenians. In the north, the Romans were having trouble and even suffered a mutiny. Even though this invasion had just begun and the Romans were not that far from home, they had just finished fighting a decade-long war against the Carthaginians, and they wanted to go home. It took some work, but the new leader calmed the troops down and convinced them to carry on with the invasion. At this time, Philip V's army was marching on the newly organized Roman legionnaires. In 198 BCE, a new consul set out to the Greek mainland and demanded to meet the Macedonian king, to negotiate peace terms. The terms the Romans offered were simple. Dismantle the entire Macedonian Empire or face the wrath of the Romans. They did this under the guise of liberating the Greek city-states, which the Rhodesians had inspired them to do with their letter for help only two years before. This was obviously never going to work and only infuriated Philip V, forcing the two armies to prepare for war. This was the first great battle between a Greek phalanx and the Roman legionnaires, and the Romans did not fight like traditional Greek armies. Unlike the Greek phalanx, the Roman legionnaires had an entire division of small artillery, where troops would hurl small javelons at the Greek phalanxes. They threw these weapons with speed and force so strong it could pierce a Greek shield, and sometimes pin the arms to the shields. However, the biggest threat of the javelins was the fact that they stuck into the shields, bogged them down, and eventually were forced to be discarded. This made the Greek soldiers vulnerable to attack. As soon as the negotiations failed, the Romans launched an aggressive and quick attack, 
sending their missile troops on the offensive, they quickly pinned the Greeks down before they could properly organize. And in the chaos, the Roman general sent the bulk of his army running around a large hill to flank the Greeks from the back. This resulted in mass casualties and a general retreat from the Macedonians, and the supply cart of Philip V was captured by the Romans. This defeat was the beginning of the end for the Macedonian kingdom. Winter came and the armies were forced to retreat to the nearest cities to recover over the winter months. The Roman legionnaires went to Boeotia and the cities around Achaia. In the spring of 197 BCE, the war picked up and Philip V had raised a new army consisting of really old and really young new recruits. The two armies met on a hill in an area called Kinoscephalae or Cenocephalae. The Romans had over 20,000 soldiers, 2,500 missile troops, and even 200 war elephants. Although I'm not sure if these were African or Indian war elephants. I would assume they were African war elephants because of their conquest against Carthage. The Romans didn't fight alone. They had almost 10,000 Greek soldiers from the smaller Greek city-states. Philip V was fighting with a smaller army, but he still had over 25,000 fighting men. It was a very foggy day, and each army knew the other was out there, but they couldn't see them. So they both sent scouts up ahead to spot the enemy. And when they bumped into each other on top of a hill, they just immediately started fighting. They managed to alert their commanders that the other army was on the opposite side of the hill. The scouting parties continued to battle on top of the hill when the morning fog finally broke off and both armies could see the two scouting parties fighting on top of the hill. Unfortunately for Philip, half of his army was off sent foraging for food and they were not ready for battle. Both armies began to march up the hill from opposite sides and Philip made it to the top of the hill first and had the momentum of charging the Romans down the other side of the hill. The battle was going well for Philip, and the Romans were starting to crumble before the mighty Macedonian phalanx. Then Philip's foraging troops made it to the battle, and rushed up the hill to form a second Macedonian phalanx on the, on the left flank, so they could swing around and pinch the Romans between two phalanxes. Unfortunately for Philip, the second group of soldiers had a lot of catching up to do, and they were running up the hill in a disorganized fashion, and had yet to form up the phalanx. Back at the Roman camp, the Romans still had half of their troops in reserves and all 200 war elephants on standby. Knowing this was their only chance, the Romans sent a charge into the Macedonians while they were still unorganized. This was a bloodbath, as the Roman elephants trampled over the Macedonians, causing a mass panic and retreat. The Romans and their elephants pursued their enemy, but one of the officers saw the left flank was about to be overrun by Philip, so he took a small contingent with him and turned back to help out his comrades. The Roman left flank was just about to fall to the Macedonians when the small group of Romans from the right flank arrived back at the battle and attacked Philip V from behind. 
The confusion forced the phalanx to turn around and fend off the attack from the rear, and as soon as the phalanx broke formation, they were overrun from both sides. All of the Macedonians were killed, while Philip V galloped away on horseback. In 196 BCE, Philip V was forced to sign a treaty, stripping him of all his lands in Greece and was to pay an annual tribute to the Romans. His navy was destroyed, his son was taken to Rome as a hostage, and Philip was forced to be a client king to the Roman Republic. With Philip V defeated and Macedon no longer a threat, the Romans attended the Olympic Games in 196 BCE and declared themselves liberators of the Greek city-states from over 100 years of Macedonian rule. They declared the Greek cities would be free and no longer be taxed. They were cheered as liberators and heroes by the Greeks attending the Games. The Seleucids congratulated the Romans on their victory against the Macedonians, but the response was a warning. The Romans ordered the Seleucids to leave any Greek city-states they had captured and to never cross the Adriatic into Greece. The Romans did not trust the Seleucids as they were allies with the Macedonians. And a move that really pissed off the Romans was when the Seleucids invited Hannibal into their court as an advisor. The Romans hated Hannibal. He was like Adolf Hitler to them, and now he was with the Seleucids. This act pretty much damned the Seleucids right there. In 190 BCE, the Romans had invaded Anatolia, and the Seleucids sent their armies to meet them in battle. The Seleucids were defeated, and the Roman expansion into Anatolia began. In 188 BCE, Demetrius, son of Philip V, was released from Rome as a hostage and returned to Macedon. He was fully assimilated to Roman culture now and urged his noble families to bend the knee to the Romans, while Philip V and his eldest son started to organize resistance to the Roman invaders. Eventually, Demetrius was murdered and the faction that favored war with the Romans won out. The new Macedonian king Perseus started to build alliances among the Greek world to resist the new Roman influence in Greece. The Romans did not like the actions of Perseus, and they watched as his influence grew in Greece. Eventually, the Greeks from the southern states grew afraid of Macedon's building power, and an emissary was sent to Rome to plead for their help once again. This time, the Romans weren't going to wait for the Macedonians to build strength and attack. They acted first. A Little Bit de Todo is a podcast about a little bit of everything for curious minds of all ages. I'm Christina, and you can tune in every weekday to learn about things like Cinco de Mayo, Chihuahuas, and volcanoes in Latin America. Episodes are bite-sized, 10 minutes long or less, and always Latin American related. Subscribe and follow A Little Bit de Todo podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. In 174 BCE, a Roman diplomat traveled to Greece and made a peace treaty with Perseus. But this treaty was a trick. The only purpose of the treaty was to gain more time to build a stronger army. And this act of deception proved valuable in the war to come. In 171 BCE, 
the Romans traveled across the Ionian Sea and landed in Greece. At the same time, Pergamon landed over 6,000 troops in Attica and marched north to meet up with their Roman allies. The Macedonians then marched through Thessaly and met the Roman army in battle. The initial attack was a victory for Perseus as he killed more than 2,000 Romans with his phalanx while suffering only 60 casualties. The Romans were angry and took their frustrations out on the Greek cities that supported the Macedonians. In 170 BCE, the Romans ravaged the Greek countryside, pillaging Greek city-states that dared defy Rome and killing all of their inhabitants or selling them off into slavery, and burning every building to the ground. Many great cities were destroyed forever in these raids. This barbarism by the Romans turned the attitude of the Greeks as they suddenly looked to the Macedonians as their true ally and liberator. But the Roman legions were already there, and it was too late to get rid of them. In 168 BCE, near Mount Olympus, at the Battle of Pydna, the Romans defeated Perseus in an epic battle that sealed the fate of the Greek mainland for over a thousand years. The Romans managed to use their new tactic against the phalanx by bogging them down with missiles and charge the Macedonian phalanx with locked shields as fast as they can, getting beyond the edge of the pikes where the Macedonian soldiers were completely defenseless. Often the Greeks would drop their spears and pull out daggers, but the Roman short swords made quick work of them, and the Macedonian army was defeated. Even though this battle started with over 42,000 Macedonians and only 37,000 Romans, the Roman army only lost 1,000 men, while the Greeks suffered 20,000 casualties, with another 11,000 being captured and sold into slavery. Perseus himself was captured and carried back to Rome in chains and died a prisoner in Rome. The line of Antigonus ended with Perseus. Throughout all of this ordeal, Pergamon was always acting as a close friend and ally of the Roman Republic, and many other Greeks looked at them as traitors. While the rest of Greece was burning, Pergamon was flourishing with trade, and an economic boom that led to the creation of one of the most beautiful cities of antiquity. Meanwhile, the Roman legionnaires were marching through mainland Greece, Epirus, and Illyria, capturing hundreds of thousands of slaves. In 167 BCE, Judah was part of the Seleucid Empire. It is said that trouble started after Antiochus IV issued a decree forbidding Jewish religious practice. A rural priest refused to abide by the rules of worshipping Greek gods. When a Hellenistic Jew stepped forward to take the priest's place in sacrificing to an idol, the old priest killed him. The priest and his five sons fled to the wilderness of Judea. The old priest died the next year and his son Judah led an uprising of dissidents to victory over the Seleucid dynasty of Antiochus. Initially, they used guerrilla warfare against the Hellenized Jews, and there were many of them. The Seleucid army was sent to quash the revolt, but turned back to Syria when Antiochus died. 
Judah Maccabee made an agreement with Rome that made them allies. The Seleucids couldn't do much about it because they were having internal conflicts. A lot of modern scholars view the Maccabean Revolt as an uprising against foreign oppression than as a civil war between Orthodox and Reformed parties. The Orthodox Jews founded the Hasmonean dynasty which ruled from 167 BCE to 37 BCE, being a fully independent kingdom from 110 BC to 63 BC. They reasserted the Jewish religion and reduced the influence of Hellenism and Hellenistic Judaism. Independent Hasmonean rule lasted until 63 BC when the Roman general Pompey intervened in the civil war, making it a client kingdom of Rome. The Hasmonean kingdom ended in 37 BCE when the Idumean Herod the Great became king of Israel, designated king of the Jews by the Roman Senate. In 150 BCE, a pretender came to the capital of Macedon and claimed to be the son of Perseus. This man was a fraud, but he gathered a lot of support. He sought to re-establish the Macedonian Empire and regain its independence from Rome. In 148 BCE, at the Second Battle of Pydna, the Romans crushed the Macedonians and fully annexed the kingdom and created the Roman province of Macedonia. This act triggered the Achaean League in the south who saw the Romans as a threat to their sovereignty and gathered an army of their own to fight the Roman legionnaires. And to think only a couple of decades before, the Romans were cheered as heroes and liberators at the games. Polybius blamed the nationalists of the ancient city-states for stirring up the population into starting a war with the Romans when they knew it was sure suicide. The Romans made quick work of the Achaean League, wiping them out almost immediately. In 146 BCE, the Romans defeated the Greeks in battle, and many of the fleeing men fled to the walled city of Corinth. The Romans did not want a repeat of the last several decades. They were determined to make an example of Corinth. The Romans surrounded the city, tore down its walls, and killed every single male in the city. Not a single man or teenager or boy was spared. They were all cut down. Many of the women and children were killed too. And the ones who weren't killed were beaten and carried off in chains to be sold as slaves. The entire city of Corinth was burned to the ground and the stone buildings and temples were torn down brick by brick. The city ceased to exist afterwards. And at the exact same time, on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea, the Romans were doing the exact same thing to the city of Carthage. The Romans were no longer giving their enemies second and third chances. All of Greece was now part of the Roman Republic. The remaining Greek kingdoms were slowly being conquered by Roman consuls who were desperate to get their fame from conquering the rich kingdoms in the east and hauling back gold and riches and an army of slaves to be sold in the market. 
The Seleucids eventually fell in 63 BCE after suffering defeat from the Parthians to the east, the Celtic invasion of Anatolia, and by the Romans to the west. While the last Greek kingdom to fall to the Romans was Ptolemy, Egypt in 30 BCE. The Greco kingdom of Bactria, which is modern-day Afghanistan, continued to the year 10 CE. The long reign of Greek empires and city-states was over, but the Greek people did not disappear. In many cases flourished, and for the average Greek person life went on. Greek philosophy continued, and so did the artwork and the plays and the religion. In many ways the Greek culture was adopted by the Roman elites, and many Roman citizens studied ancient Greek literature. This marks the end of an era, but gives rise to the Greco-Roman period. In 133 BCE, the king of Pergamon died without an heir, and seeing the way the world was heading, he bequeathed his entire kingdom to Rome. There were some who did not like this as they rebelled, and they were quickly put down by the Romans, probably slaughtered. But the city remained prosperous and free under Roman rule without having to pay tax to the Romans. Unfortunately, a later uprising against Romans saw Pergamon lose its tax-free status, but for a while, there was peace. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the History of Modern Greece. See you next time. Stay safe and stay awesome.